Alex, why are we getting the old far- farmer's almanac on an annual basis here at uh, the radio station? People are back into astrology. I'd, uh, <laughs> I'd save that. People might get back into uh, old farmer's almanacs pretty soon. This is the uh, uh, press release headline that they send with it. 2019 old farmer's almanac, a comforting constant in a changing world. <laughs> Damn, I need that. <laughs> I need a comforting constant. Yeah, hang on to that. Uh, manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. During what we hope to be one of our very last broadcasts of This Is Hell that is abbreviated by Northwestern Freaking University Freaking Football, capitalism can no longer afford its energy addiction, which means capitalism is about to have a real bad case of the shakes, and we better figure out how we're going to deal with it because our guests don't think the plush throw and orange juice of negative interest rates and buying up significant amounts of public debt is going to help capitalism get clean this time. Our guests this week will be, possibly, our biophysical economist Pavo Yarvin-Sivu and philosopher Tara Vaden, co-authors of the report Governance of Economic Transition as in Transition from Capitalism, which was written at the invitation of the UN Secretary General for next year's UN Global Sustainable Development Report. Capitalism is done for. Its demise is imminent. Capitalism can no longer keep up with the high energy costs capitalism needs to succeed in its current state of overconsumption. And all the economic crises that capitalism is facing globally today, rising inequality and debt levels, unemployment, slow economic growth, and impotent governments, as the authors point out, are all signs that capitalism is transitioning to something else. What will that something else be? The authors have an idea. And while that future might be chaotic and violent, they're hoping for a radically different global system that considers the energy and material costs to the economy and environment, something our economics currently do not do. Pavo is economy and culture researcher at BIOS, an independent multidisciplinary research unit which studies the effects of environmental and research factors on Finnish society, on economy, politics, culture, and develops the anticipatory skills of citizens and decision makers. Tara is a docent at BIOS, where he has looked at the material and intellectual underpinnings of political politics and culture, in particular the uh, ex- experiential dimensions of energy. Tara is author of the 2014 book Heidegger, Zizek, and Revolution. Pavo is author of Endless Money in Scarcity, which merges economics, 
ecological, and cultural research. Pavo and Tara on the end of capitalism. That's what's happening today, plus some rotten history, listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online, and of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry. Alex, what's new by you? Oh, I am doing a dumb contest because my friend Melanie, uh, shout out to uh, MC Perry Middle School and High School in Japan, uh, (laughs) who's also a listener to This Is Hell, donated a one ticket to Riot Fest on Friday. That's next Friday. So all you need to do is uh, play along with this dumb game that I came up with uh, that involves a story about Chuck being blind and accidentally disarming a mugger (laughs) when he was getting off the train. And were you also on mushrooms or... Was I drunk when you told me that story? Uh, I was not on mushrooms. That's ridiculous. I wouldn't be taking a hallucinogen like that. I was on acid. Oh, okay. Oh, damn. Okay. Well, I got to edit that. But anyway, uh, Chuck was confronted by a mugger, and because Chuck is blind and on drugs at the time, <laughs> he didn't notice the mugger had a gun and knocked it out of his hand and onto the street, the gun. Actually, I just smacked his hand. I, I'm, I'm pretty certain he was still carrying the gun because I kind of remember looking back at him and he having a mystified look on his face while holding a gun. Okay, so all you need to do to win a ticket to Riot Fest for next week is on Facebook. Let us know. You scroll down to the post. Uh, actually, I'm pinning it right now. Uh, where did that happen? Pick a street corner or an intersection in Chicago, uh, and if you are the closest person to that street corner, you'll win one ticket to Riot Fest. So don't enter unless you can either go to it or scalp the ticket. So, yeah, so I took acid. We took the train up to Kenilworth, which is a far north suburb. I walked all the way home to Uptown, where I was living at the time, a time new Chinatown, uh, and... Uh, I was walking home, and on the way back from, uh, you know, having a whole bunch of fun, uh, I was walking on the street, and a guy asked me to stop, and I said, no, get away from me. It could have been a nun with a Bible. I just pushed the person aside. I didn't care. I was very busy tripping. And uh, when I pushed them aside, my friend, about 20 or 30 feet later, said, man, I cannot believe you did that. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, that dude just pulled a gun on you, and you told him to get lost or whatever I said to him. I can remember exactly what I said to him. And I almost uh, peed my pants because uh, I was very frightened at that point. I had no idea he had a gun. This is Hell is broadcast live without interruption on WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago Sound Experiment. Streaming live online at our website, thisishell.com. Podcast shortly after at the same place, thisishell.com. Now airing an abbreviated one-hour version on Lumpen Radio in Moscow, Idaho on KRFP. And on Lumpen Radio in Chicago Southside. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell and Alex has this week's Hangover Cure. This week's Hangover Cure is a classic, which we may have mentioned on the show in the past, but if we have, it's worth mentioning again, and if we haven't, this week's Hangover Cure is sleep, as (laughs) bodyandsoul.com.au reported this week in an article headlined, Five Science-Backed Hangover Cures That Actually Work, writer Anna Lavdaras explains that often people might find that after night on the town, sleep may be disrupted. While a lack of sleep doesn't necessarily cause a hangover, it can definitely make your symptoms worse. Things like fatigue, headaches, and irritability are all hangover symptoms that will be worsened by a lack of sleep. Science suggests sleeping in and getting some solid Zs can help alleviate hangover symptoms and make others more bearable. If that's what science suggests, then it's good enough for us. And this week's Hangover Cure is the classic of sleep. I like when somebody, when a reporter says science suggests, really just science, science got together yesterday and suggested that, yeah, sleep's probably a good thing for you. Science is suggesting who is science? You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Us Wrong, This Is Hell. 
One of the reasons I'm pretty certain we are God's favorite radio show is because God likes to hear news about what's really happening in Brazil. And God's Portuguese isn't all that great. Here on This Is Hell, we have our correspondent on all things Brazil, Brian Muir, who reports to us from Sao Paulo, where he also covers Brazil at Brazil Wire and now at Brazil 247. We want to thank Brazil Wire, and odds are God wants to thank Brazil Wire, too, for posting a transcript of our report from Brian last week, who told us about the Brazilian coup that none in the U.S. media dare call a coup. My understanding is God is very keen on interview transcripts as well. Brian was also on France 24 this week, where he was on a uh, four-person panel that debated the situation with Brazilian president-turned-prisoner Lula da Silva. They were talking about his situation and being in prison right now. One of the people on that panel who Brian destroyed, I mean debated, was somebody from Northwestern who turns out to be a former executive of Goldman Sachs. And you really don't have to do any research to figure that out. All you have to do is listen to what the guy was saying, and you can figure out that he's from Goldman Sachs. And you can find that video of Brian debating on France 24 at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can also find the France 24 video at Brian Mears' own Facebook page, facebook.com slash brian.mir, M-I-E-R, and I suggest that you like Brian on Facebook because this is what he posted yesterday, Friday afternoon. It's wag the dog time in Brazil as the media rallies behind the white supremacist, market-friendly fash candidate, fash by that he means fascist, fash candidate Jair Bolsonaro after he was involved in a bloodless stabbing incident, which on film appears to have not even ripped his t-shirt two days after a closed-door meeting with the nation's most powerful TV executive. The market-worshipping Guardian, which has been performing character assassination against the Workers' Party members, including Lula, for five years, is already positively comparing the fascist with slain socialist city councilwoman Marielle Franco, who we covered here on This Is Hell, who was literally killed by fascists. The stage is set for a fascist electoral victory in Brazil next month, and the military are already blaming the quote-unquote stabbing on the Workers' Party. So Brian is always reporting on things that are happening in Brazil. They're just not making it here in the U.S. media. As Brian has pointed out during his segment so many times in our show, the Western media, the news in the U.S. and U.K. and the rest of the global north refuses to talk to those on the left in Brazil and consistently supports the undemocratic far right wing, which still openly supports the former Brazilian military dictatorship. Indicative of that refusal to talk to the left is the foreign media's refusal to recognize the Brazilian coup for being a coup and the Western media's continued opposition to Brazilian democracy and the overwhelmingly popular Workers' Party. And it goes even farther as the Western media refuses to recognize the U.S.-backed lawfare campaign that is being waged across Latin America against the pink tide of the early 2000s, which challenged U.S. dominance in the region for the first time in forever. But for whatever reason, you're not going to find those stories in the New York Times. So if you want to circumvent the censors of the Western media and know what's really happening in Brazil, well, you can't go to Telesur English as easily anymore as Facebook is blocking it. So follow Brian Muir on Facebook. Watch Brian on Brazil 247. This week, Brian interviewed past This Is Hell guest Mark Weisbrot and read Brazil wire.com it's time for nasty gnarly nauseous naughty nerdy icky drippy sticky goopy gloppy globby gory rotten history in 1860 158 years ago it was a dark stormy night on lake michigan when a horrible novel began to be written no when the side wheel steamship lady elgin that's a hell of a thing to call the wife of canada's governor general from 1847 to 1854 james bruce the eighth earl of elgin i mean 
why would you call his wife the sidewheel steamship? I mean, it's kind of rude. Wait, they actually mean the boat named for Lady Elgin. They're not calling her a sidewheel steamship, although from pictures I've seen of uh, Lady Elgin, that wouldn't surprise me. The sidewheel steamship Lady Elgin, departing from Chicago for Milwaukee with some 400 passengers, collided with the schooner Augusta just off the shores of Lake County, Illinois. The collision ripped a hole in the Lady Elgin's port side below the waterline, and that is where you do not want a hole to be ripped when you are aboard a ship, especially at night. The Augusta also sustained some damage, but its crew, not realizing the extent of the Lady Elgin's damage, was able to return safely to Chicago. The captain of the Lady Elgin Meanwhile, issued desperate orders to dump its cargo, including live cattle, into the water in the hope of raising the gash in its hull above the water's surface, which makes you wonder if cows are good personal flotation devices. But the Lady Elgin broke apart, dumping its passengers and crew into the stormy waves. Ninety-eight people uh, clung to lifeboats and bits of floating wreckage long enough to reach shallow water, where they were helped ashore by rescuers who included students from nearby Northwestern University. Go Cats! The other 300 passengers were not so lucky. To this day, the wreck of the Lady Elgin remains the most deadly accident on open water in the history of the Great Lakes, which implies some sort of closed water record for drownings on the Great Lakes, and I have no idea what that means. I've never really understood the open water concept. Where is water... Not open. The tub? The toilet? The sink? Where? In Rotten History 1974, 44 years ago, U.S. President Gerald Ford issued a full and unconditional pardon of his predecessor, Richard Nixon, for any crimes he might have committed while president, while uh, making Ford complicit in all of Nixon's crimes, which we all need to always remember. And I'm looking at you, Grand Rapids, Michigan, you furniture-making bastards. Ford had been uh, installed as vice president by Congress after Spiro Spiro Agnew resigned in disgrace, and the Republican Party couldn't find anyone else who would pardon Nixon, and Ford had briefly uh, enjoyed high public approval ratings after being sworn in as president upon Nixon's resignation, because anything was better than Nixon, right? Apparently not, as Nixon was put on a U.S. postage stamp in 1995, and they did put Ford on a stamp. Ford, who didn't resign in disgrace until 12 years later, in 2007, but the pardon sparked accusations of a corrupt bargain, Nixon escaped prosecution, and Ford's poll numbers plummeted. In fact, Ford's poll numbers dropped so far that Nixon actually became more popular than Ford. Keep that in mind the next time a friend annoys you by saying, I cannot figure out how Donald Trump became president. Simply reply, I'm still working out how uh, Nixon ever got on a freaking stamp. In Rotten History, 1989, 29 years ago, a Norwegian chartered jet crashed into the North Sea off the coast of Denmark, killing all 55 passengers and crew aboard. Great, now i got to write jokes about a deadly disaster. Jesus, I hate doing these. Uh, Analysis later revealed that the airplane's tail had separated from the fuselage in flight and that the failure was caused by counterfeit bolts of inferior quality used in recent maintenance. Makes you wonder exactly how do you get in the counterfeit airliner bolt business? Is there a high demand for counterfeit airliner bolts? Is there ample demand? I have so many questions about the counterfeit airliner underground market. The accident triggered worldwide investigations of airplane parts supply, which revealed widespread counterfeiting, unregulated vendors, and lack of quality safeguards. For example, the FAA, the United States Federal Aircraft Agency, airline agencies, found that uh, almost 40% of aircraft replacement parts were counterfeited. 40% of parts, airplane parts, were counterfeit, and this is as recently as 1989. 
So you're telling me that up to 30 years ago, airliners were being built with counterfeit parts on a regular basis in the U.S. No wonder the year before the investigation into counterfeit airliner parts took place, 1988, there were 23 airliner accidents. And by 2017, last year, there were only 10. So yeah, who was putting in all these counterfeit parts in airliners up until 1989? Oh yeah, that's right, the greatest generation. I always forget how great they really were, literally, because I can't think of one great thing they ever did. That's Rotten History and This Is Hell. You can rate This Is Hell on Facebook. Uh, just go to facebook.com slash thisishellradio and rate us from zero to five stars. 181 people have so far and they've all given us five stars. You want to hear This Is Hell on your local radio station, just send us your call, the call letters of your local radio station to chuck at thisishell.com and we'll contact them. Coming up on This Is Hell, a new report to the UN says capitalism is done for and we better start thinking about our transition away from it. That plus uh, listener feedback, maybe, what Alex has been up to on social media, a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell. We have a contest to clear up, and we want to thank some people for sharing the show online. Of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell as well. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity in talk radio, so clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. Capitalism's done. It had a good run. Actually, it didn't. Capitalism's run has been pretty devastating for the planet, and we need to move away from it if we don't want to live in a despotic world of chaos and violence. Here to tell us why and to discuss our potential futures, biophysical economist Pavo Yarvin-Sivu and philosopher Tara Vaden are co-authors of the report Governance of Economic Transition, which was written at the invitation of the UN Secretary General for next year's UN Global Sustainable Development Report. Welcome to This Is Hell. First of all, welcome to you, Pavo. Thank you. And welcome to you, Tara. Thank you. Uh, welcome to both of you for being on this week's show. Uh, Pavo and Tara wrote the report with their colleagues, Tero Toivainen, Villa Lada, Antti Mayava, and UCT Aronin. You can find out more about the report by going to the BIOS website, bios.fi slash en for the English version. And you can follow BIOS on Twitter at bio. Bios Research. Pavo, first to you. You are a biophysical economist. What is biophysical economics? Um, well, I uh, my background is in a in a business school. Um, so I have a doctorate in business administration. Um, you could uh, say that I I I focused on economic sociology. Um, um, from the point of view of which you can kind of see that the mainstream economics, uh, it, it hasn't really touched upon the kind of uh, um, biophysical uh, dimensions of the economy, nor actually cultural or social or political dimensions of the economy. So, so um, I think all these dimensions um, need to be considered if, if we are to kind of move on from these kind of uh, current mainstream economic understandings. Well, let's uh, follow up on that, uh, Tara. Uh, what do we miss in our understanding of our current capitalist system when we don't consider the interconnectedness of all the different aspects of our economy? Well, for instance, the, the idea is that there is this uh, free market or, or uh, marketplace for all kinds of goods and goods and stuff 
it's uh, uh, disregards the fact that in order to have a marketplace, you have to have uh, energy to get to the marketplace. You have to have the social rules, the social institutions, how you behave on a marketplace and so on. So that, that's all, all of the background stuff that gets lost if you just uh, think in, in the sort of like classic Chicago school of economics ways. So, Pavo, what explains to you why those things are not, uh, why we don't pay attention to those inputs more often? Why do we ignore, uh, for instance, why do we ignore the environmental costs to the economy when we are trying to uh, create the energy resources that are needed for the economy to move forward? Mm, Well, that's a really good question. and, And I think you could also pose it in a way that what makes it possible uh, for us not to consider these energy and material issues. Because if you consider, um, let's say, 200 years back, it was quite obvious that if you're running your economy, you need to really consider where you get your energy and what you can achieve in those material uh, terms. Um, so, of course, after after that, we've, we've uh, witnessed a period of massive growth in 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 fossil fuels, um, every year we have, we've had more and more um, energy to use in, in society. So um, if you consider the situation now, we are kind of in, in a situation where it's really difficult for us to understand that what, like our basic uh, everyday lives. So uh, what are the kind of energetic and uh, material conditions that are needed for our everyday lives? So basic situations, it's really difficult to understand how much energy is needed to move to your workplace or to produce your food or something like this. Um, so it's no wonder also in a, in a kind of a theoretical or academic sense that we have lost the kind of sense of these. Um, energetic and material dimensions. And, and this is something that um, my colleague here, Tere, has uh, worked on from kind of a philosophical standpoint. Yeah, Chuck, if I can follow, follow up, up on that, you mentioned steamships earlier in the historical, histor- historical section. So if you're a steamship captain, you, you are uh, sort of, it's a part of your sort of professional pride to know what kind of uh, energy, what kind of coal you are using in your steamship. But if you are a captain in a, in a sort of like a diesel run uh, uh, boat, or if you if you uh, if you are running your car, you don't have to care about the gasoline or whatever you put into the tank. And that's a very sort of uh, very concrete way of of getting distance from the energetic roots and the and the. A huge irony there is that we have this illusion of independence for, from nature, independence from energy resources, simply because there was this huge natural bounty of, of, of uh, very highly concentrated, high quality fossil fuels. Tara, let me follow up on that then just uh, as a little bit of an aside, because it's just something I was thinking of when you were responding. How much do you think climate change has been dismissed by those who are climate change denialists simply because our economics, our system of capitalism, doesn't know how to address a systemic challenge 
like climate change? Do we ignore or dismiss or deny climate change because our economic system doesn't have the vocabulary to deal with climate change? I think that's that's part of the problem. Sort of the the uh, illusion of independence, the the utopian idea that we can continue like this, sort of produces a certain kind of blindness and lack of concepts and and lack of framework frameworks for dealing with the uh, the fact of sort of uh, how do you want um, well, if you want to call it like nature hitting back or whatever you want to how however you want to conceptualize the fact that of of climate change that that nature was there and and that energy was not just a nice thing that you can use when you use energy you also get all kinds of negative things pavo can there be simple minor adjustments made to save capitalism, or can it simply no longer continue? How unsustainable does your report argue capitalism really is? Mm, um, that's the kind of a question that we, ha- we have been asked quite a lot uh, since we published the report. Um, and I've tended to kind of... Um, go around it by saying that that's that's not actually our kind of focus in the paper because um, it kind of depends on what still uh, counts as capitalism. So what we are saying there is that um, um, within the kind of 20 to 30 years, we have a certain really radical um, task that we need to accomplish. Um, so we need to um, actually rebuild our infrastructure and practices so that we we are not so reliant on fossil fuels anymore. So we actually need to um, rebuild how we uh, do transport and produce energy and produce food and, and so on. Um, so we are there kind of interested in not so much on the effects of capitalism, but what kind of um, economic governance or how we could govern uh, the capitalistic system or or the market economy so that we could achieve these kind of needed transformations. Um, And of course, if we really start to do these uh, transformations, so we are collectively guiding the economy and the society towards um, radically less um, emitting um, ways of moving around and producing food and housing and so on, then um, probably the end result is something uh, not so similar to the capitalism we have now, which is, of course is uh, really... Um, Kind of dependent on the idea of ever ever growing consumption and and it seems that it's even dependent on ever growing energy use and so on. Pavel, let me follow up on that with you then, uh, because your paper not only does your paper suggest what some of the solutions can be, 
they, it also points out the economic crises that capitalism is facing today. There is an article mm-hmm. about your report at motherboard.com, and they report that climate change and species extinctions are accelerating even as societies are experiencing rising inequality, unemployment, slow economic growth, rising debt levels, and impotent governments. Contrary to the way policymakers usually think about these problems, the new report said that these are not really separate crises at all. So, Pavo, why do we want to think of these as separate problems? How do, how do you, uh, why do we think of these, why do we want to think of these as separate problems? Why do we want to think of inequality as separate from uh, any kind of debt problems we're having, any kind of impotent governments we're, we're having? What leads us to thinking that these are separate problems? Mm. Well, I, I really think that we are currently kind of unable to think these um, these dimensions in an interconnected way. So it's really difficult for us to uh, think of uh, or to have a sense of energy and materials and these sort of things at the same time as we are talking of the economy. It's, it's of course, if, if we just open the newspaper, you read every day about the economy, there's an economy section, uh, but it, it never really discusses the kind of material foundations of economic activity or businesses or something like this. It's it's mostly on the kind of very abstract uh, monetary level, basically, or profits, profits and losses and these kind of things. Um, so it's that's just the way we ha- we have been taught to uh, consider the economy. And this is, of course, a huge task then to change how we think of the economy. And Tara, just following up on that, so these current signs, uh, current crises that we are facing when it comes to our economic order, our economic system, when it comes to capitalism, uh, are these not just some temporary fluctuations within our economy, but signs of our system not only failing now, but permanently collapsing? Are the challenges facing capitalism today the beginning of the end of capitalism, or are these just bumps along the road in the history of capitalism? Well, they are quite existential crises, and and you can look at look at those from two perspectives. From the if you if you take the biophysical perspective, from from the perspective of of inputs and outputs. So the input quality to the economic system in in, in biophysical terms is is going down because the energy return of of uh, energy sources. Is going down fossil fuels. Uh, we, we need to do fracking and, and go to Arctic areas and so on to get to get the oil and the energy return levels of so-called renewable sources is is, is a lot lower. And and we are already using pretty much all the arable land for farming and so on. So the input side is is facing a hard limit, and then the output side, which is the climate change. Climate change uh, is, is, the, is the sort of the biggest phenomenon there. There are also other output problems that we output too much carbon dioxide and, and we kill too many animals and, and, and sort of the sinks are not there anymore. So the, the limits are being hit right now. Pavo, uh, will the cost of fossil fuels simply make them unsustainable? Will the market reveal that fossil fuels no longer work within our economy? I think it's really clear that the market 
cannot uh, price these fossil fuels properly. So, of course, if we're talking of the real cost, they are um, huge. Um, and we are already seeing them in, in also in the rich Western countries. Um, but still, we are kind of acting along the market prices. So what makes economic sense, we still look at the daily market prices and we don't so much uh, consider the kind of longer term costs or the real costs that we are in a way still reading from the same newspaper, but from a different section, you might say. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Tara, what will happen if we do continue to generate the energy we want for material use, if we simply ignore the cost of climate change, uh, if we continue on our system of capitalist overconsumption, or will it be impossible to ignore? What will happen is, is what, what's happening right now. <laughs> you know what's, what's happening. So it's like in, in Finland today, it's a very hot, hot nice uh, autumn day and it's like 10 or 15 degrees above what it should be so there's a very ominous feeling to enjoying the the weather and 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 sort of like okay so so people will uh, find it harder and harder to get food people people will find it harder and harder to sort of sustain or, or sort of uh, have any kind of healthy ecosystems and and so on so that's that's what's uh, going to continue if we don't change let me ask you something, Pavo. Uh, the report says that decades of academic work and ecological economics have gone into integrating in energetic and material stocks, flows, and boundaries into economic thinking. Although some progress can be seen on the economic theoretical level, the economic models which inform political decision-making in rich countries almost completely disregards the energetic and material dimensions of the economy. So, Pavo, is the point of your work, is the point of this report that you were invited to give this report to the UN, is the point of your work and the works you cite in your report to get policymakers to consider energetic and material dimensions of the economy, that is, get them to recognize what you call sink costs and the direct economic cost of climate change caused by capitalism's overconsumption? Is that your goal, to bring attention to these kinds of inputs on the economy? Hmm, that's definitely one of the goals we have there. Um, and we, and I think that, um, we have kind of a different strategy than, than the kind of, um, decades of work that you just mentioned, um, on the kind of theoretical level. So we are actually not so much interested in, in kind of bringing along these energetic and material dimensions into the theories. Uh, economic theories, but we are uh, kind of looking at the and highlighting some uh, economic thinking and some economic policy tools that could actually help um, governments in achieving these kind of um, tran- uh, transformations in society that we earlier talked about. Um, and I think that the if we are kind of a, if this goal is to improve the um, how we understand these material or natural limits to economy, so to speak, uh, then that's that's always a kind of a multidisciplinary task. 
So it seems unlikely that we can have like one economic advisor to the government that could take on these all these dimensions properly. But actually, we need to engage in a kind of multidisciplinary um, work that then uh, kind of uh, sets the real um, boundaries for policymakers. Pavo, you're quoted at Motherboard saying more expensive energy doesn't necessarily lead to economic collapse. Of course, people won't have the same consumption opportunities. There's not enough cheap energy available for that. But they are not automatically leading to unemployment and misery either. If expensive energy doesn't automatically lead to economic collapse, then how certain is the collapse of capitalism due to climate change? It, it's well, of course, the current um, kind of dominant political thinking is is around the kind of lack of money, so lack of public funding and so on. Um, so this can this can be um, debated on 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 many levels, and and we've been looking into these kind of post-Keynesian discussions or the discussions under modern money theory and so on. Um, and you can argue that actually uh, money is not the kind of limiting factor in us doing these tran- transformations or money is actually not limiting whether we have employment opportunities or not, or even um Yes, so so we can manage economy or or we can kind of collectively guide the economy and that's not guided by money but it's it's uh it's uh bounded by these um well technology and natural resources and of course our skills and and wants and and so on. So there's a there's a huge shift that we should be doing in in that sense, that what what are we kind of aiming for? That are we seeing businesses or no? Sorry, I mean, uh, are we seeing governments as as kind of households or businesses just one entity acting in the market, or are we seeing them as actually economically sovereign, at least in their uh, own currency and so on? So that's a big big kind of um, discussion that. I think it's really important right now. Tara, can alternative forms of less expensive energy, at least when it comes to environmental costs, if not production costs, can we simply use clean alternative fuels and continue our current state of what your report sees as overconsumption within capitalism? Well, in a word, no, (laughs) because the the energy return on energy investment is is so much lower with those, those energy sources that so much more uh, physical work is going to get is is going to be needed to get the the sort of similar amount of energy. It's simply not sort of physically possible to do with with the so so called alternative energy energy sources. So, Tara, uh, do we need a uh, a more radical plan than what has been suggested by a lot of people who are? Uh offering market-based solutions to our climate change problem, and that is carbon pricing. Can we save the planet with market solutions, including carbon pricing? 
Well, that's that's uh, sort of like uh, uh, putting me putting me on the spot there. Maybe in principle, if the carbon price would be really really high enough, and it would be enforced in a in a very rigorous manner. So maybe in principle, it's conceivable, sort of like it, it's human. It's not humanly impossible to conceive of, of such such sort of circumstances. But again, sort of realistically thinking about how, how carbon pricing happens now and how it's enforced and how it's tracked and so on. So no, 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 no way it's going to happen. That's the that's the point of the sort of the paper uh, that we are that we are discussing here, that the sort of transition needs a much more uh, sort of coherent and and much more sort of uh, forward-looking planning than what, what sort of blind markets can do if there were, if there were such a thing as, as sort of blind free markets, which, which there isn't, of course. But sort of the, even, even in the sort of uh, best possible case, they would be too, too play, blind, too chaotic, too, too sort of non-directional di, to, to do the transition. So it, not, it needs to be planned and, and uh, governed and guided much more much more coherently and, and precisely. Pavo, the report says economics need to transform the ways in which energy, transport, food, and housing are produced and consumed. The result should be production and consumption that provides decent opportunities for a good life while dramatically reducing the burden on natural ecosystems. In terms of greenhouse gases, global net emissions should be zero around 2050 in Europe and the U.S. by around 2040. Pavo, have you seen any indication that we are heading in that direction, that we can attain zero emissions by 2040 or 2050? Well, it is, of course, really difficult. And I think, as you suggested, we are still uh, kind of relying on the market or the technological development to do this or that one day carbon pricing could be steep enough that <laughs> we could be all right. But of course, we are really in a hurry to do these kind of uh, transitions. And what makes me uh, kind of, in a way, slightly optimistic about it is that we are now, I think, sensing the effects of climate change, even here in the kind of uh, Nordic setting so people are actually turning uh, towards looking for a kind of sense of real security in 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 the future in a kind of very material or even existential sense uh, so we are maybe willing to kind of uh, um, look towards our own uh, ways of consuming or or so on and and kind of uh, uh, sacrificing something to achieve something more on the kind of collective level. And the report that you and uh, Tara are co-authors of with others from the BIOS Research Group uh, also says that you need we need to lower total energy use. Tara, does lowering total energy use necessarily mean lowering our standard of living or our quality of life. Your paper addresses how we need to re-examine the way we approach uh, housing, how we need to re-examine the way that uh, we approach transport. Does lowering total energy use mean having a lower standard of living or quality of life? 
No, not not necessarily necessarily at all. But what it means is having a lower sort of material consumption, uh, but then providing for the sort of uh, necessarily let's say necessary services or, or wants or needs that we have as humans in in different ways. So it doesn't necessarily, for instance, mean traveling less, but it means traveling by other means and traveling with other people, sharing and, and public transport and, and so on. I think it's good to remember that already now at, in, on, on the planet, we have maybe two billion people who live within the boundaries of, of one planet. And and maybe half of them already sort of have a, let's say, uh, quite uh, long life expect, expectancy and good literacy levels and vibrant cultural life and and so on. So having a good quality of life with a much lower uh, energy uh, use or material consumption, it's, it's perfectly possible. It just it seems to be very difficult for us in the, in the first world or, or the north or whatever you want to call the rich countries. Uh, Tara, let me just follow up on that with you. Uh, can technology save us from lowering our energy use? Can technology uh, save us from being forced to conserve, to consume less energy? Because, you know, here in the United States, we always look to technology to saving us from whatever crisis we're about to face. Can we save our culture of overconsumption through technology? No, not not with current technology. Of course, a miracle can happen or aliens can land or something something like that can happen, but not, not, with, not with any sort of uh, current technology. Another ironic point actually is there, there is that the so-called alternative energy forms like, uh, let's say, photovoltaic power or nuclear power, they're actually quite old. They're decades old or, or even 100 years old in, in the case of photovoltaic. So uh, that that's sort of from the philosophical, very sort of like uh, history conscious perspective gives gives the idea that technology hasn't actually been doing that much lately. And Pavo, uh, does this need to be a government response? Does this have to be some sort of big government program that addresses what you see as the concerns when it comes to uh, energy and its inputs into the marketplace and its inputs into our economy? Does this have to be a government response or can we depend or ask the private sector to solve these problems that you've been discussing when it comes to capitalism and the environment? I think it's clear that the government is currently the only um, actor in society that can fund and organize these kind of things and that has the legitimacy also to do these kind of things. It was kind of created just for these kind of tasks. Um, and, And I think this kind of Keynesian thinking, if we come back to that a bit, uh, it it's kind of a it is what we have basically done here in the Nordic countries. That's the kind of Nordic experience that we are uh, we are controlling the market economy uh, through the government, or we have kind of a mixed economy. So this is not so uh, this is not something totally new, um, and and many people have have constantly kind of or automatically link Keynesian thinking to very pro-growth 
thinking in the sense that it would only be interested in creating more growth and and from there to have something to share with the people and so on. But it, you can actually approach Keynesian thinking also as, as, as a kind of giving tools for understanding economic governance um, collectively or politically. And there we can just kind of change the agenda or change the goal so that we are actually looking at uh, what are the necessary societal transformations and then um, this kind of economic thinking can provide us with those tools how to do the how to do the governance so it doesn't necessarily need to uh, be aimed at growth um, in the first place but to achieve these kind of very material uh, level um, transformations. I've got one last question, a separate question for each one of you. We have been speaking with biophysical economist Pavo Yarvin Sivu and philosopher Tara Vaden, who are co-authors of the report Governance of Economic Transition, a report on the transition that our economy is about to face due to climate change, which was written at the invitation of the UN Secretary General for next year's UN Global Sustainable Development Report. You can find out more about the organization where Pavo and Tara work, which is called BIOS. You can find out more about them at bios.fi slash en for the English translated version of it. And you can follow BIOS on Twitter at BIOS Research. Tara is author of the 2004 book Heidegger, Zizek, and Revolution. Pavo is author of Endless Money and Scarcity, which merges economics, ecological, and cultural research. Let's start with you, Pavo. Our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. But let's start with you, Pavo, because you were already touching on this with your last response. The uh, paper states, in view of the challenges encountered today in implementing meaningful international agreements, the most likely option for initiating transitions to sustainability would be for a group of progressive states to take the lead. This would require economic thinking that enables large public investment programs on the one hand and strong regulation environmental caps on the other. In the modern global economy, states are the only actors that have the legitimacy and capacity to fund and organize large-scale transitions. So states must regulate more, do more to protect the environment, while using more of the public's money. That sounds like bigger government. Can the unpopularity of big government that we see so much in the global north, the the uh, west, whatever you want to call it, can the unpopularity of big government lead us instead of into a more successful transition that you hope for, can the unpopularity of big government lead us to chaos and violence? That's a really good question and and I'm really Tough one. So I think we are kind of uh, forced to consider again whether we would actually uh, like big government more than these chaotic events that we are seeing now. And I think from the kind of Nordic perspective, it's not unconceivable that we would kind of uh, come together, you uh, know, in a way collectively to. Uh, make the necessary steps towards this kind of transformation. So it's not unconceivable here. It's very difficult for me to kind of comment on the U.S. level where it comes from. But but I'm sensing that the kind of uh, younger people, they're not so um, 
affected by the kind of, uh, <laughs> well, uh, what you might call the Chicago School of Economics or that kind of thinking. So that ideology not not might not be so creeping for the younger generation. So, so let's see how it goes. I think it's a balance, uh, or it's a, it's a matter of these political debates that we are having now, and 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 it's ongoing in very different ways in different parts of the world, and that's. That's something we need to recognize as well. Tara, my question from hell for you is uh, your paper states that in developing countries, the regime of exporting a narrow selection of commodities and raw materials and importing cheap basic food items has not worked for local communities. A wide array of research shows that developing countries ought to focus on providing diverse nutrition for their own people and thereby increase local livelihood opportunities and improve socio-material conditions in general. So that sounds like what you are describing is the policies of the Washington Consensus, of the World Bank, of the International Monetary Fund. So to what extent does do these uh, programs like uh, the World Bank structural adjustment programs that gave loans to developing economies in exchange for those economies to open their market to cheap subsidized goods from already developed nations in the global north while changing the developing agricultural economy into one that is a monoculture, to what degree did those kinds of policies by the Washington Consensus, by the World Bank, how much is the Washington Consensus a threat to our culture of overconsumption? Mm, I'm not sure I even even sort of kind of uh, get that that question. How much is it? Do, do the threat? do the policy do the policies where we where things like the World Bank impose upon developing nations that they become a monoculture that they open up mm-hmm. their uh, their economies to developing countries and their mar- and their goods? Does that has that led to a threat to the very culture of overconsumption that the World Bank yeah, is well, trying to promote? Well, now I got it. Yeah, of course it's it's very self defeating. That's part of the. Part of the blindness, of course. That's that's why what I find so what what what's been sort of like occupying me for for, for the last months and last years to think about the fact that supposedly we are the sort of I think in, in many people in the first world they think that after the Enlightenment and and so on we and and modern science and so on we think that we have the clearest less uh, least least sort of. Uh, Utopian, least hazy, least uh, least sort of uh, the most objective view of what it is, what it means to be human, what it is to to live as a human on, on this planet, mo- most scientific and 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 so on view view on that, and then what happens is that uh, we come up with climate change by accident, so that the biggest thing that we do is something that happens by accident. Nobody wanted it, no, nobody sort of meant it, but it happens. So uh, to me, that sort of points just just sort of in in a in a very very sort of deep sense points out that maybe we didn't uh, maybe we were not those those people or those humans that we thought that we were maybe our self understanding isn't so great after all and 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 the, and the paradox that you point out I think is a is a very good concrete example of of that that sort of kind of blindness. Tara and Pavo, I really appreciate you being on our show this week. This has been a fascinating discussion, and everybody should check out your paper, Governance of Economic Transition. We have a direct link to it at our website. Thank you so much for being on our show this week.
Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. That's biophysical economist Pavo Yarvin-Sivu and philosopher Tara Vaden, again, co-authors of the report, Governance of Economic Transition. You can find out more about their organization, BIOS, by going to uh, bios.fi. The English translated version is at slash en, so bios.fi slash en. And you can follow BIOS on Twitter at BIOS Research. All right, so we got to wrap up the show. We've only got a few minutes left as we are doing one of our, hopefully one of our very last abbreviated one-hour shows, abbreviated by football, live from the good old U.S. of A., where capitalism is all our pimp. This is hell. You want to make certain Capitalism doesn't become This Is Hell's Pimp. Support This Is Hell at thisishell.com. Just go there and click on support, and This Is Hell has new gifts, a completely redesigned T-shirt. If you dig that 60s kind of international man from Uncle Design, you will love our new swag, including our new tote bag and our brand new enameled stainless steel, not tin, camping coffee mug. Drop by during office hours, and I'll be glad to show you all of our new lineup of This Is Hell gifts. Just go to thisishell.com and click on support, and you can see what we have to offer. We want to thank Bridget and the tithing support of John this week. Let's go to the update booth with Alex to find out what Alex has been up to and if we have a winner of today's wacky contest. Uh, I think we have a winner. Uh, Chuck, do you want to announce uh, where your disarming of a robber on uh, acid happened? Uh, South east of you uh, Argyle L-Stop. I wasn't quite underneath the viaduct yet. I wasn't under the tracks quite yet, so I was on the southeast corner there. Uh, it's at the alley and uh, Argyle, so I would say the closest intersection would be Kenmore and Argyle. Uh, that means our winner is Brian Smith. Uh, office hours regular Brian Smith. Maybe he's heard that story before. I know. I that's what I'm worried about. about. I know. we got to find new drug stories. I know. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, Brian, you're our winner, and you're going to get our free pass to Riot Fest. We'll get to you probably on Wednesday during office hours. And you can join all of our listeners at office hours every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. Drop by. I'll give you some subvertising stickers, maybe some free books, if I remember. Every Wednesday evening, it's This Is Hell Office Hours. It's like a meet and greet, a think and drink, whatever you want to call it. Every Wednesday, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. You can now become a supporter of This Is Hell via Patreon. If you become a regular Patreon supporter, not only will we show our appreciation by sending you some of those This Is Hell subvertising stickers so you can subvert advertising anywhere you'd like, but you also have access to special perks, including every week, getting a classic interview from our back catalog of 20 two-plus years of on-air conversation selected by me or Alex with a new up-to-date introduction on why I selected that interview, or Alex did, for our Patreon patrons. And in the future, you'll get additional bonus gifts at thisishell.com when you click on support. So uh, it's just basically just a whole nother episode of This Is Hell. And on this week's Patreon podcast that you can hear right now by signing up to Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, patreon.com slash thisishell, we interviewed a cop. I know, a freaking cop, right? But this cop is one of the good ones. Uh, it is uh, an interview that we did in January on January 14th, 2012, with former Seattle Police Chief Norm Stamper, who held that position during the 1999 WTO Battle for Seattle protest. So why the hell were we talking to the top cop during the Battle for Seattle? Well, Norm was on to discuss his book, Ranking Rank, a top cop's expose of the dark side of American policing. You can only hear that by signing up with us on Patreon. And... 
And uh, we want to thank the people who did sign up for Patreon this week. Thomas C. and Brian R. Brian posted on Twitter, finally started supporting at This Is Hell Radio on Patreon. Chuck and crew have been flying their own dirtbag left banner for over 20 years, and I just found out about them last year. They've been one of the few things standing between me and total insanity in these dark times. Thanks, Brian. And you can join Brian Thomas and another 266 listeners in supporting This Is Hell by becoming a Patreon subscriber at thisishell.com. I'm sorry, at patreon.com slash this is hell patreon.com slash this is hell by the way last week during our question from hell for the chop out trap house guys uh i asked about uh, i mentioned uh, listener alexandra and how she was pissed about the fact that chop out trap house was bringing in ten thousand dollars a week brendan james then told me uh on air no we're not bringing in or ten thousand dollars yeah ten thousand dollars a week we don't bring in ten thousand dollars a week no they don't according to their patreon site they bring in $109,000 a month, or over $25,000 a week. Proving that even in the supposed meritocracy of podcasting, there's still staggering inequality as they're bringing in about 100 times more than we do on Patreon. Uh, next week's Patreon podcast that we'll be sharing, uh, we'll be sharing a conversation on race that hopefully will help you reflect on racism within your own life. I know it had that impact on me, albeit 10 years ago. We'll be sharing our May 24th, 2008 interview with social psychologist, science writer, and editor Siri Carpenter, who wrote the Scientific American article, Buried Prejudice the bigot in your brain. At the time, Siri wrote, deep within our subconscious, all of us harbor biases that we consciously abhor. And the worst part is, we act on them. All you have to do is just sign up for us, uh, for, sign up for your supporting of This Is Hell at patreon.com slash this is hell. Alex, are you going to share anything on Patreon this week? I know we got to go because football is probably here. Yeah, already. I post uh, earlier, a couple days ago, I posted Noam Chomsky's first interview uh, ever on This Is Hell. Actually, it was right before 9-11. I mean, that's not a coincidence. <laughs> uh, also, that's uh, Chuck at his most respectful it's oh a, yes, yeah. You, uh, I mean, obviously, uh, you do I that. was blown away by the fact that we actually got him on the show, and I couldn't play the cross-dressing killer in the murder I was supposed to be in the movie I was supposed to be in, in the murder I was supposed to be in the murder movie I was supposed to be in because I had uh, Noam Chomsky on the show and I was freaking out. I want to thank everybody who shared this is hell in the last week. Uh, thanks to Anti Tanky Cookies for Anti Reactionary Nookies. Thanks to Turtle Island Liberation Now, Black Rose Book Distro, Anti Capitalist League, Monkeys Monocle. Nick Arnoldi dot art, Gorilla Gramophonics, Nathan Douglas, Patrick Vior, Robert, Julie, James, Jeffrey, Doug, Jasper, Oliver, Try, Tom, Adam, Rich, Furigus, Lawrence, Steve, Kahinde, Jeff, and Jesse. And those are only the people who shared This Is Hell on Facebook. Thanks to everybody for sharing This Is Hell, however you do that, whether it's on Facebook or SoundCloud or whatever. All right, so we got to wrap it up. Uh, thanks for listening to this week's This Is Hell. Our hangover cure this morning was sleep. Our guests were biophysical economist Pavo Yarvin-Sivu and philosopher Tara Vaden, co-authors of the report Governance of Economic Transition, which you can find on our website, thisishell.com. You can like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and you can follow us on Twitter at thisishellradio. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing this week's show. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. The only way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show. Oh, wait, is to tell you, Alex, do we have time? Time to tell people who's on next week's show. Uh, Lizzie Gross from the Detroit Free Press uh, to talk about her piece on how Detroit's housing prices are manipulated, and I don't know who else. 
The only way you can get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's show is to sit down in the lotus position. Turn your palms towards the sky. Focus on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and say these simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Oh, Matt Damon. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.